Uh, you good? All right. Here we go. <clears throat> Speed. Three, two, one. Welcome back to the Mission Story Slam podcast, brought to you by PWP Video. I'm Michael Schweisheimer, the executive producer at PWP Video and Mission Story Slam. We started Mission Story Slam to share the stories of the organizations that we serve at PWP Video. Those include nonprofits, B corporations, triple bottom line companies, and sustainable organizations. People who are on a mission to make the world a better place. We gather at Yards Brewing in Philadelphia and pick the names of 10 storytellers out of a hat, and they compete for a $250 donation to their favorite nonprofit. The audience also selects a favorite story for a $100 donation. We videotape their stories for sharing on social media and with friends and supporters. This podcast is about the story behind those stories. What motivates someone to tell a story in front of an audience? How did they choose the story they were going to tell, and what was the experience like? And we get to learn a bit about the storytellers themselves. Today's guest was a storyteller at our first Mission Story Slam, where the theme was that moment. Ben Bingham is the founder and CEO of Three Sisters Sustainable Management, and they manage the Scarab Funds, where they identify, foster, and fund private and public enterprises that meet the highest financial, social, and environmental standards, with full-spectrum, positive-impact investment strategies for advisors, consultants, and sophisticated decision-makers. Ben's story was part Zen Cohen, part confessional, and entirely brave. Let's take a listen. So everybody in the world has a mission, I believe. So there's a golden thread that runs through everyone's life, through dark times and times when everything is going well. And perhaps your father told you a story like this. There was once a villager who lost his horse. He jumped over the fence his best and only workhorse. And when the villagers gathered around to commiserate, he said to them, good luck, bad luck, who can tell? The next morning, his horse returned with five more horses, and he was the richest man in the village. So the village came to celebrate, and he looked at them and he said, good luck, bad luck, who can tell? So. The next day, his son went out with the new horses, and one of them kicked and broke both of his legs. Everyone came to commiserate, and he said again, good luck, bad luck, who can tell? The next morning, the army came to town to recruit all the able-bodied boys in the village for war. So my story begins when I was three or four years old. I had the luck to be with my cousin and, and my older brothers um, and watching them swim by the brook. And my good fortune was that no one was watching me. So I had the opportunity to walk to the end of the diving board and gleefully jump into a 10-foot dark pool. As I looked up through the water at the sun, I saw rainbow-colored bubbles, and I was feeling the sense of oblivion. My story is called Awakening from Oblivion. That moment, a torpedo-like form came through the water and grabbed me, and I was so angry that my moment of of oblivion and joy um, was broken up, and I choked on the water. He pulled my limp body up onto the shore, 
and fortunately knew uh, how to pump the water out and save my life. From that moment on, my, my family cherished me in a different way. Decades later, I fell into a different kind of oblivion. When you join a new company, there's a certain amount of due diligence that one should do. I had not done that. I was asked to join, and I was so proud to join a very well-known socially responsible investment firm and to bring a vision to them that 100% of people's money could be invested in a way that would make the world a better place. The founder of this company had not really been doing much investing. He was speaking about it. And so I, I had the opportunity to build a portfolio, but he turned to me right away and said, all I want you to do is the stocks part of the portfolio. I'll do all the private and unusual alternative investments and I'll manage the, the budget. You just raise money and take care of the stocks. I had done quite a bit with stocks before, and I knew that I was happy to try to find beneficial public companies, although I knew the real impact was in the private side. Nevertheless, I was happy in this position. I felt lucky until an audit found something strange in the books and accused my, my boss of doing something unethical. Of course, he denied it and was, he seemed to be really upset about this and that it wasn't true, and I believed him for a time. But after a while, he admitted doing something unethical in this company that was meant to be all about being socially responsible. So we parted ways. And you can imagine the shame and uh, consternation and disappointment, the letdown of this moment. People were angry at me and I was angry at the founder. I had a choice to make and that was that moment for me. Should I run away, go back to farming? I had been a biodynamic farmer for many years and just forget about my idea of transforming the way money worked in the world. But I couldn't leave the clients behind. I couldn't leave all these private investments floating in nowhere land. I had to learn how to manage them. And so I took charge I became the founder of a new firm. We took responsibility for the investments. And seven years later, we have had six years of good returns with all of the investments and a, and a wonderful new team. More importantly, hundreds of thousands of people have benefited from the work that we've done. So the next time that you feel yourself in a moment of darkness, in a dark pool, and something comes to wake you up in a painful way, just remember that sometimes pain is just a way of reminding you of your mission. And also remember, good luck, bad luck. Who can tell? So good luck, bad luck, who can tell? Welcome to the Mission Story Slam podcast, Ben. Thank you. I, I'm curious, does that theme 
uh, about transitions or um, up and down? Is that something that is a an ongoing thing in your personal story? Yeah, um, <laughs> I was. It's actually a kind of a joke in my family that every time I get hit on the head, things uh, get better. So I get I, I get new talents. <laughs> so I was originally my personality uh, changed quite dramatically when I was pitching in baseball, and I was just a jock in high school. And um, while I was recovering for five days, I was knocked out. Um, I asked for a pen and. Um, because I had a vision of something I wanted to draw, and I drew it. I'd never drawn before. And somebody took it to the art editor of the high school magazine. Oh, my. And I got elected art editor. <laughs> and the art teacher came along, uh, was a new art teacher. He didn't know that he knew that I was football captain and art editor when he arrived late in the summer. And he said, you know, I've just got you a big piece of oak because you clearly should be a sculptor, you big strong guy <laughs> and your art you know. So he gave me some woodworking tools and he said, start imagining, look at this wood and imagine what's in the wood and while you're walking around. And I went he never showed me how to carve. I knew how to carve. I I carved something that, that won second place in the all New England art show. And um, it changed my whole you know, my whole persona. Because I was now the artist. Uh, then he persuaded the faculty to let me stop doing my work, uh, I my schoolwork in spring term of my senior year. Um, persuaded the faculty to let you stop doing schoolwork. He said, I've you're never so, heard of such a thing. Well, it's a spring project, but they actually let me stop doing everything except play on the baseball team and take American history because that's the law in Massachusetts where I was. But um, yeah, I had to fill the foyer of the dining room twice with art, and I, I just completely, you know, got into the arts and wanted to go to a college that had a good art program. I'd already applied to Harvard and Yale and Columbia, not thinking about this particularly, and then I went to Yale because of the art. Um, and then I left Yale because the ceilings were too low for the sculptures I wanted to make. <laughs> so it does sort of continue <laughs> okay. as a theme. But how do yeah. you get from leaving Yale because you can't do big, large enough sculptures to sustainable investing? Because that's, uh, that's a turn I'm not expecting. Yeah, so I, I, I ended up going to a college that was non-accredited. I also wanted to, I had a high number in the lottery for the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and I was a, had already applied to be a conscientious objector. Uh, and I was told if I left school um, and my number didn't come up, I'd be free from the draft. Okay. So I, I went, I bought a motorcycle, and I visited this college that my father told me about that was connected to his philosophy, which is Rudolf Steiner's work, Anthroposophy. And I thought this would be a bunch of pipe-smoking philosophers, and it turned out to be a bunch of people from all over the world that were my age and really cool people who were, you know, just trying to figure out what, what life's about. And, and Yale was a crazy place, and I was really curious to t I really wanted to take some time, and they did have sculpture there, but I fell in love with agriculture. They had a, it was on a big farm, and I just started really spending a lot of time on the farm, and then I signed up for a two-year course in biodynamic agriculture. 
And it's there that I learned about sustainability and the, the whole concept of um, actually self-sustaining farming, which is kind of one step better than sustainability. Yeah. So you use all the resources that are around you and make, you know, make an organism out of it, so an ecosystem. And so, you know, flash, if you, if you go forward in my life without telling the whole story, I did start a nonprofit on a, on a farm with, with some other people. Um, I raised capital for that farm and, and for that whole community, which is still going today. It's called Triform Camp Hill Community. Wow. And it's a, um, a campus for young adults who want to go to college, but they don't have the intellectual capacity to, to go to college, but they have the social interest in each other and want to be in a fun place. So we created a kind of a college with with courses in drama and arts and they learned how to f- work on the farm and so before we dive into getting to three sisters and how that happened mm-hmm. talk just a little bit about the experience of being at mission story slam i was really pleased when you accepted my invitation and came and then and then got up and told this story which i just love i think you told me about it shortly before and i decided you know i, I this is important to me to tell this story because you know you you carry, um, you know, you can carry guilt or whatever in the financial industry. I'm a kind of a head person more than even, I mean, I, I try to engage my heart as much as possible and keep it aligned with my head. But my in my, you know, intellectual side, I really believe that collaboration and transparency are the future for business and, and, and that brotherhood and sisterhood should be the ideals behind commerce altogether and if you're if you're brother and sister you don't you know you have to be straight with people with each other and and so i i thought hmm, you know i can i can talk about this uh, because it's happening all around us all the time Um, there's so much collusion and and dishonesty and you know you read about uh fines you know it's like a casual thing you read yeah. read all the time that you know that some big bank is you know was just fined hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars and they don't it doesn't they, they don't, don't even blink. blink they don't change their behavior so you know I, i'm actually you know just i'm writing a second book I, I guess you didn't maybe mention that i wrote a book called making money matter which tells my story and the subheading is impact investing to change the world, and and I actually do tell the story in the book as well, um, but very you know, it's really talking about the, um, the the kind of addiction to debt um, that is all around us, um, which is another part of the story, and it's like a kind of oblivion when you're when you're in debt and you and you realize you can get away with it and then you borrow some more and you borrow some more and then it's just too late to recover. The next book which I'm working on is really about um, sort of the creating uh, the idea of commerce as, as what I was saying, that, that it's you know about brotherly love and sisterly love and that if we actually collaborate and we're transparent with each other, um, the whole world will benefit from that. And I think the more people are dare to say that or talk about virtues, I'm actually going to write about virtue, which is kind of not very politically correct anymore. People don't really claim to know what the truth is or what what's virtuous and what's not, what's good, what's not. It's all relative. And that's been 
since the sixties really the the whole even philosophically it's everything is relativism and and that's fine in physics, but actually phys- the relativity in physics has been superseded, and I think we need to catch up in our in our culture um that you know it, we actually make our society by how we think and who we are, what we're striving to become. And, you know, we've kind of fallen back on this idea that it's only human to act badly. It's only human. And so people can do whatever they want and and get away with it. So your story goes in a lot of directions. You talk about the you talk about almost dying. You talk about the experience of being betrayed. And you talk about even experiencing things like shame and regret. And it's not something that I think a lot of people get up in front of an audience and discuss. I, I feel like that is tied to this idea of, of virtue, of being able to pursue that kind of honesty. Is that, am I right? Does that tie together for you with this idea of, of virtues to be able to be so open? Yeah, I mean, we're all working on becoming, you know, where I, I like to call us human becomers or becoming it human instead of human beings, human becomings. Um, I'm not claiming to be the most virtuous person in the world. And I, you know, that's that's always a danger when you talk about virtue. Well, if you were being that virtuous, um, I would be very concerned. Yeah. If you're um, so, you know, um, if you're not willing to talk about your faults and you know your mistakes, then you know you it's it it means that you're it's I guess I just as an example I when somebody says uh, something like um, what's the, what's the phrase people say what Let me be honest with you yeah that's the <laughs> I always I always say well you mean were, you were not being honest before you know what's going on here. <laughs> So throw out um, everything from before, yeah. And you know, so I was being honest with people, and maybe that was not what I. What you realize as you're getting older, you know, I'm I'm 69. I'm I'm willing to admit that I don't remember things exactly the way they were sometimes, or you know, it was my own memory, but my story. I'm a storyteller. I mean, that's part of who I am. So I make up things, and that's um, I felt you know, a rich content to share that maybe would be beneficial for people to hear and maybe they could open up more um, because I open up. Um, But, you know, if people, you know, think I'm trying to put myself forward as the most virtuous person in the world, it would be a turnoff too. So that's not good PR. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I don't know. I just think we're in it together. We're all trying, and I really do believe that, you know, at the beginning of my story, I say everybody has a mission. I think humanity has a mission. I think human becomings, you know, we all together have a mission and we're all in it together and we affect each other. Help me understand where sustainable investing. I don't know if everyone even really understands the basics of that concept. Okay. Sure. So when I started in in 2000, the reason I started was because it really irked me that people that claim to be socially responsible and um, philanthropic and foundations and Endowments that represented, you know, colleges that are supposed to represent the highest ideals in the world, 
were investing in a way that had no relationship to their values. And this, uh, I mean, there's so many reasons why that happened, but the main reason is that um, somehow it became acceptable for c companies to be persons even if they weren't good citizens. And the original idea of corporations was that they were, that they, they got the right to be protected when they had initiatives to start a bank or a bridge or whatever. They had the right to be treated like a person as a whole so that the, the people doing it didn't have liability and could take risks. So it stems partly from that, that we, we think the corporations are people and that we can support them. But then the next step was when, when our government, and, and it got copied around the world, made it almost like a law that to be a prudent investor, if you're representing you know, a, an endowment or a foundation or whatever, you have to only put profits at first. You don't, right. you don't even have, you're not even or initially, I think it got so that people weren't even, didn't think they were allowed to think about. Was that that whole you know, concept of like fiduciary responsibility? Right. Okay. The fiduciary responsibility, the prudent man rule, all these things were developed um, in the interest of corporations who were actually not good citizens. So, you know, the, it was like a catch-22, and I was... It, it, the other thing is that the, the third thing that, that I wanted to see if I could do something about was that these good people that were investing in... I, I helped start some technology companies in the 90s and the nonprofit before that, when I talked to these people, that's when I started to hear this idea that we can only give away or play, you know, play money with venture and be, you know, angels that angel investors that invest in cool things that we believe in with five percent of our money because that's kind of how much we can make with the rest of our money doing whatever they do at the big banks. Okay. So the foundations have that concept that they have to give away five percent. To, in order to keep their 501c3 status. And so that's kind of where that grew, the, the, the thinking that, you know, we can only do 5%. So that's when I joined in 2000. Certain things have evolved since then. So now foundations can do what are called program-related investing and then mission-related investing in the corpus of their of their rest of their portfolio. And, and Obama... Uh, tried to change some some rules there mm -hmm. to make it so that they couldn't get sued for making decisions that weren't profit first. Um, now those decisions are being you know questioned and possibly will be turned around again. So there's a real need for people to realize what a disconnect is that where for philanthropists and foundations and endowments to invest 95 percent of their assets in a way that is disconnected. I mean, the the, the the main thing is people always talk about cigarettes. You know, you a lot of people are not investing in cigarettes anymore, but it used to be that everybody had a lot of cigarette Everyone tobacco. Everyone had some RJR in their portfolio. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, but if you're a cancer foundation, you know, would you do that? Yeah, they used to. Wow. So now it's kind of waking up. It's a waking up well, time, and it's been that way since I started in 2000. So it sounds like a... a Sustainable investing now is being able to find ways to invest where you're not looking at extractive industries or damaging or uh, things that are harming people or the planet. Is that 
That's right. And so, and so the other thing is um, everybody's wanting to have kind of like a short span of time in which their money is invested so they can take it out and do whatever they want with it. So most of the people, even if they're doing what you just said, socially responsible investing and avoiding, you know, extraction, avoiding degradation of nature, avoiding maybe chemical compounds and military and things like that, Mm -hmm. they're still just investing in stocks, which are kind of one step removed from reality. It's just the value of the stock. Okay. Whereas in 2000, I don't know, five or so, there was a, a kind of a, a move amongst some foundations and endowments to start doing direct invest in, m- investments in private uh, initiatives that were going to make a difference in the world more directly. So your money is going right to the company. You're going to be helping start things. And um, so I wanted to do that, but I couldn't do it when I was learning in the beginning. I was at Lake okay. Mason, and then Citigroup took over Lake Mason. But I, when Citigroup started paying uh, the advisors for fake mortgage applications, seriously, $2,000 a shot, Wow! I, I said, I got to get out of here, and I, I, I found that group that you met me at. Yep. Um, and I started... Wanting, I had this vision of doing the private investing along with the public investing and real assets and doing the whole thing, um, and that's what I've been doing, you know, on my own with with my new team for the last seven years. And then I guess when you're talking about the private investment and the longer time horizon and the direct investments and cool ideas that'll make a difference, is that is that impact investing or is that something even entirely different? <laughs> So, yeah, so I call it impact investing across asset classes. Um, Some people would say impact investing is only if it's in Africa or somewhere, um, you know, where you don't get a return. But there's a whole range of of gray and to green, whatever, and greenwashing and all of that. And, And that's part of what, you know, we're trying to set the highest possible standards. But we also include public companies. Because I actually think that the market could become a measure of human values over time so that people would only invest in companies that are doing good things. And so the value of bad companies would go down. So we play in that in that space as well or work in it. By the way, I had no idea that the concept of impact investing was often thought that it it's almost the way you're describing it almost sounds like it should not return a profit. Is that... I'm saying that's when it first started, that, okay. that some people associated it with, um, you know, giving up on the returns. And still today, it's amazing after, you know, the, all the years that it's been around that people are still carrying that mythology. Also about socially responsible investing, which are ESG investing, environmental, social, and governance. The myth is that you don't get the return, but you get something better. You get, you know, you get a fi- you know a, a philanthropic return or something, and that's a myth. I always say it just depends on the manager to some extent and timing, and and there are all kinds of things that that affect return. But the fact that it's a good company or bad company, there's like hundreds of studies that show it either doesn't make any difference whether you're choosing good companies or bad companies, or you get a better return with good companies. That's I've never seen one that says you get a less good one for for bad companies, but I see people saying that all the time. They just assume it. Wow. 
and it's uh, I say if it's a if they're managing the environmental and social issues and the governance issues in their company, they're probably just better managers altogether. And you know if they're not, and and I'm not the only one that says that. The head of BlackRock just has said it. You know some of these big bad companies we associated with, you know. Um, private military, you know, investments in going in and after the bombing and, and rebuilding companies and having interest in the, you know, fossil fuels and rebuilding pipelines or whatever, those companies too are starting to see that there's they're making more money if they consider the environment and society. They have less risk as well because they're not going to be sued for mismanagement. So... To me, we're sitting, I think, on a wave of change in this space. It's happening very slow motion. <laughs> it's been a long wave, yeah. but I think it's getting bigger. It's building up, and it's, maybe it's going to be a positive tsunami. Ben, thank you. You can learn more about Three Sisters Investment at their website, which is the number three, sistersinvest.com. And you can also find a link there to Scarab Funds. We'll be bringing you more interviews with storytellers from Mission Story Slam in the coming months. And who knows what other paths we're going to go down. I'm excited. Like all podcasts, we really benefit from your reviews and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues who you think would enjoy what we're doing at Mission Story Slam. Of course, you can follow us and share on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. The Mission Story Slam podcast is produced by Dave Winston and brought to you by PWP Video. We are video with a mission. Find us at pwpvideo.com. We'll be back with another episode soon. And until then, I'm Michael Schweisheimer. I'm looking forward to sharing the next story behind the story with you then.